Right, now we're in action. I said, I don't know where he got the 10 years from, but um, yeah, okay, we'll let him get away with that. Uh, I've enjoyed ministering at this church now for coming 15 years, and... Um, <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> And I did come from New Zealand originally, and uh, that was 20 years ago, or very near. And um, so it's a joy to be with you. But as you can see, I'm not Nigel Shaler, and, um, who was supposed to be here today, and I was really looking forward to the topic that he had uh, for consideration. I haven't um, taken up his topic, but um, I've got something uh, equally important to myself anyway, and I trust to you as well. And um, my topic is, okay, we haven't got a um, connection here. Nothing up on that screen. We had a bit of a power failure before, but the sparky came, and praise the Lord, we are back on stream. So... Um, while we're waiting for this, I wonder if you could turn your, open your Bibles and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will commence at verse 8. Just a short reading, but this is where our elective session topic uh, exposition is going to be taken from. Uh, this afternoon. Just follow with me as I read that through to the end of verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and commencing at verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For while I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice that's interesting, isn't it? We already had a bit about rejoicing this morning. So here is Paul rejoicing again. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow... Of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, all this proved that the Corinthian church was genuinely repentant. And so that's what I want to engage your minds with and trust the Spirit of God will engage your hearts with this afternoon. And it's something that we are all faced with from time to time, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. And it's all to do with genuine repentance so whether you are a spouse here tonight today or a leader in a church uh, a child or whoever a student at some stage you will be faced with the tension and turmoil of having to discern if a claim of repentance is genuine or not you with me 
consider these couple of scenarios that I'll put to you. Mum and Dad, your parents will empathise with this. Or if you haven't, you soon will in the coming years. I'm looking at Nia back there, smiling away. Yeah, you'll have to wait a while, Nia. Mum and Dad, upon hearing a terrible scream from their little Johnny who was out in the yard, they rush out to his aid and see some rising human bite marks on his arm. And standing to one side, looking very sheepish, is Johnny's little sister Tilly, the only other human being in the yard. Looking very sheepish. And she was sensible enough not to deny the charge of being guilty for this ruckus. So what is mum and dad going to do? They could discipline young Tilly, you would agree with me, right? And rightly so. It's a nasty thing for one child to bite another. We know it. We've brought up five children and it happens. They could discipline her and rightly so. But most most often, this is how it will go down. Sad to say. Once again, I know. Because we've raised five children. Mum will often speak up, Tilly, that was a very nasty and naughty thing to do to your brother. And here Tilly comes up, she's sobbing, she's crying, and there's crocodile tears falling down. And so mum says, go and tell him you are sorry, and while you're there, you give him a kiss. That's something like what will go down, right? You see, two things happen when that kind of response comes from parents. The first one is, Tilly, though full of tears and emotion and sobbing a little heart out, that almost breaks your heart. Though she's doing that, she's elated at the same time. So she goes and does the sorry thing and the kiss thing, but best of all, she's elated because she knows it's a done deal and she satisfied her mum and dad and life can go on sweetly. The second thing that happens is the parents unwisely have schooled their child and no doubt Johnny also looking on and listening to all this in the art of external repentance. Tilly learns that all you have to do when you commit sin is verbalise an apology Verbalise an apology without ever having to engage her heart and mind with God over the matter. Now that is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Actually, this is all great parental instruction here, but that's another subject. But now jump ahead 20 years with me. Little Johnny is now married. He's a member of a local church. And he's unfaithful to his wife. He is exposed as an adulterer. And so being found out, he pleads with his wife. He sobs out an apology for cheating on her. And and to top it all that, to make it look really good or to look at Right, the real deal, I should say. He, he fesses up to the elders of the church 
and he says that he's sorry for the mistake that he's made and asks most pleadingly for their forgiveness and for their continuing acceptance of him. I now ask you, how would you respond to that? What are you supposed to do? The person in front of you says they are repentant. They say they are sorry about their sin. But but is that enough? Is it enough? You want to know if this is merely a sorry and kiss thing in an adult form? Or is it genuine? You really need to know because so much is at stake here. Sad to say, too often we could be like Tilly's parents, you know? and be convinced and satisfied by the emotion and the heat of the moment that all is well and all is genuine. That's how often it goes down, even in adult situations, in church situations, when all the time it is merely and can be an external and a worldly sorrow. And you know what? Worldly sorrow produces no healing. It has no power it produces no genuine change. It produces no transformation. All it produces is guilt and more guilt. It produces often a whole lot of anxiety and even depression, can I say, and sometimes such hopelessness in a person's life that they consider their own lives as being futile and not worth carrying on. And a classic example of that is Judas. You will know about Judas, right? You read of this in Matthew 27. Oh, he was sorry that he had done what he had done to the Lord Jesus for a measly 20 pieces of silver. He was sorry. He tried to undo it by throwing the money back at the, the Pharisees. And he became anxious. He became depressed. His life was not worth living. And he went and hanged himself. So that worldly sorrow doesn't produce anything of eternal value. But of course, as we think about that, as, of this whole situation as Christians, we do know that as Christians we're called to forgive and restore, right? We are. We're called to do that. We're called to forgive and restore other believers who have had their sin exposed. We read that and it's already been mentioned this morning, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We'll see that at the end of our message. It will be up on the screen for you. But we also know that that this forgiving and restoring is conditional on the one being repentant over their sin. But back to our text, what Paul see here, what we see here is Paul telling the Corinthian church in this chapter that he is good and ready to forgive them. He is good and ready to forgive them because he exposed and he confronted them with their sin, and they had a whole heap of problems in this church, by the way. There was moral issues going down, there was divisiveness in the church, they were abusing their giftedness, Uh, you name it. It was all going down in the Corinthian church. And so Paul, in a letter that's spoken of in chapter 2, verse 4, some people revere this to as a severe letter, it's not in our canon of Scripture, but obviously he did write another letter, where he confronted them with their sin. And what did this letter do? It produced a godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow in the Corinthian believers. 
But how do we tell the difference? How do we tell the difference? How do we discern between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? That's a question. That's a question we all come back to over and over again. And this is important because, you see, how we discern between the two will determine how we respond to a fallen brother or sister. The scriptures give us many aids to this quandary. But essentially it all boils down to discerning the pride in a person or noting the humility of a humble person. So it boils down to those two things. It'll be the pride of a prideful person or the humility of a humble person. And so you've got to discern between the two. And so any, any pride a person reveals in their repentance claim What that needs is God's law being brought to bear and allow that judgment to bear its rule against them. But any humility a person might show in their repentance, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult or whatever situation you may be in, what that needs is our restoring and forgiving grace shown to them. For example, this is what Paul did. He extended the Corinthians grace instead of the law because he judged their sorrow to be what? He judged their sorrow to be symptoms of godly repentance as opposed to worldly sorrow. He discerned between the two. But how did he know the difference? That's the question we keep coming back to. How did he know the difference? Now we can tell, well, yeah, Paul was inspired and true he was when he wrote this letter and the first Corinthians. And, um, but we can't cop out of that because Paul does leave us instruction, the inspired word of God, on how to do that. So how did Paul know? How can we know? Well, many of you here in our church would have heard me often quote the Puritan's answer to this and to many other situations. You see, whenever the Puritan of old heard an enthusiasm of extended grief or sorrow over sin, you know what they would say? We will see. (laughs) Some people think that's a bit harsh, but I think it's wise, right? We will see. In other words, time will tell the reality of all this. Very, very wise. But as you know, the Puritans and I are not inspired like Paul, so uh, let's see how he handles this. And he tells us in in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11, a verse that we have read right at the end of our reading, towards the end, that godly sorrow leads to repentance because it is accompanied by a number of things. So here's the crew. By the way, this is the most succinct statement in all of Scripture about what genuine and true repentance looks like. And so we see here that repentance is accompanied by A number of things. By what? What's it accompanied with? Well, we'll look at these seven words. It's accompanied with earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, deep longing, zeal, and justice. That's what it is accompanied with. So why did he choose these seven words to describe the Corinthians' repentance? Simply this. You see, when you stack them all together, they form a picture. When you stack them all together, they describe someone who was broken over their sinfulness more than the fallout of it. You get what I mean? They're broken over their sinfulness more than the fallout of it. 
And so these seven words provide us a what I call a seven-point recipe for discerning genuine repentance over external and worldly sorrow. And so here's the first one. Earnestness. First thing that Paul highlights is that there was an earnestness in and amongst the Corinthians that their godly sorrow had produced. In other words, the Corinthian church and those guilty of sin and error that he highlights were dead keen now for righteousness to reign in their own lives and the lives of God's people. And also there was no more animosity toward Paul. There was no more sitting on the fence. There was no more indifference. They were on fire. They were in earnest to put things right with the apostle. They were ready to do anything to restore a right and healthy relationship with Apostle Paul. Because there was a whole lot of accusations against the Apostle Paul himself. As you know, that was one of the errors and sins that they were committing. They questioned his apostleship. They questioned his authority. But there was a turnaround. There was this earnestness to put things right. That's the first indication that repentance is genuine. It produced this earnestness, an earnestness to do what is right. Secondly, vindication. We don't usually use this word, well, we don't often use this word, but it's a good word. What the Corinthians wanted to do, they wanted to vindicate themselves. What that means is that owing to their godly sorrow, their genuine repentance, they now had this huge desire from within to be expressed outwardly in the form of of clearing their name and, and clearing themselves of any stigma that their former sin had heaped upon them. And sin does that, by the way, you know. And sometimes it cannot be removed completely because, as we know, sin has its consequences. But the Corinthians wanted to vindicate themselves. They wanted to clear their name. They went all out to prove themselves now as being those who are trustworthy people. Before they weren't. They weren't trustworthy. They were vacillating. They were here, they were there. They accused the Apostle Paul. They were all over the place. They were were listening to false teachers and kind of half by listening to Paul and and having no confidence in in him and and so, but now things have changed. Godly sorrow produced this desire to vindicate themselves. They didn't want to sit quiet on this one. They didn't want to kind of, okay, everything's back to normal. Let's just carry on as normal. No one near seems to know about what's happened. No, no. They made sure that all who knew about their sinful ways and their errors And all those who had been affected by them now also knew of their turnaround, also knew of their repentance, their change. They went all out to vindicate themselves. Now, that's something we don't see too much of in our day, do we? Sad to say. 
Even in many testimonies of God's saving grace in the lives of people, it's so often all about a new life perhaps we've chosen or the blessing that God has brought to my life or the changed circumstances. And all those things can have an element of truth and are true. Or change of direction, maybe a change of lifestyle. You often hear so much about that, but precious little. Precious little about once being a a guilty sinner before a holy and a righteous God and deserving and only fit for eternal wrath. Very little about, praise the Lord, once I was blind but now I can see. And how the Lord by his matchless grace through faith has, has saved them and forgiven them. Precious little about how now I long to worship the Lord because it wasn't always like that. So we see very little, sad to say, of people longing to be vindicated who are repentant, to clear themselves by proclaiming this miraculous change that the Saviour has wrought from being a sinner now to be a saint. We need to see more of that in those who claim to be truly repentant. So another indication of genuine repentance uh, to look for is strong efforts to clear the stigma of sin in order to prove one's trustworthiness. The third one is indignation. Another word that the American Standard Version puts here, you may have a different word, but the word carries the idea of being angry. Bit of a strange word to put in there for describing one who is repentant of that. But what this means is the Corinthians were angry at their sin which had brought about so much shame upon themselves and had caused so much grief to the Apostle Paul. That was their situation. In other words, they were definitely sorry for their sin, but more than being sorry, more than being sorry, They were angry. They were sorely grieved and disappointed that their sinful and fleshly desires had so gripped them, had so influenced them, that they sinned against God and the apostle and others around them. I've seen where people get upset over their sin. But sadly, their visible grief and anger has a whole lot more to do with being simply caught out, being snapped, as I say. Being snapped and and having their sin exposed. They're so grieved about that, but it's not what we would call righteous anger. Like King Saul, you all know King Saul of old when he was hunting down David. Here he was. He already knew that his days as king were up. But that wasn't enough. Prophet Samuel had already told him that. Remember, he he went up and he tore a bit of Samuel's cloak off and Samuel used that, took the opportunity, basically said, just like you have torn my cloak, God is going to tear this kingdom off you and give it to another. So he already knew that his days were numbered as far as king, but that wasn't enough. And and when he, he saw this young whippersnapper David come through the ranks and, and people crying out, Saul has slain his thousands, uh, David is tens of thousands. He kind of knew, hey, okay, this must be the guy. This must be the guy. 
And so he starts on the hunt. I call it the two H's. He starts on the hate and the hunt. And he literally hunts David down like a, like a dog into the wilderness. But when David, um, on two occasions, actually two occasions, when he was being hunted, he caught, on one occasion, Saul in a cave doing his business. And another occasion, when he was asleep, he snuck into his camp and stole his spear. You know the stories. On both occasions, he could have eliminated King Saul and dealt with a problem, humanly speaking. His right-hand men wanted to do that, but he says, no, no, I dare not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not. But he did expose Saul's sin. He did expose Saul's sin. He told him, Saul, I could have taken your life, but I would not touch the Lord's anointed. So why are you hunting me? How did Saul respond? This is how he responded. In a great emotive statement. I have sinned. Great words, right? I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Oh, wow. Let's forgive this guy, right? Let's take him at his word. You notice one thing David didn't do? He didn't return with King Saul. He carried on into the wilderness. But what did Saul do? He continued his hate and hunt of David in order to eliminate him from being a threat to his kingship. You see, true repentance will never be angry at those who expose or know about one's sin, but it will be angry and hate the nature of sin that dragged the willing recipient down in the first place. It will. That's what true repentance and godly sorrow will do. Genuine repentance will produce genuine indignation over one's sin. We don't see, sadly, too much of that so often in people claiming repentance. But we need to. So that's another aspect. And fourthly, fear. Now this emotion often gets shelved, I might say when facing up to sin in our own lives, even in our own. And as I speak about repentance, we all should be repentant people, right? Uh, we need to be in a place of repentance every day. I don't know about you, but wow, not a day go by and I have to come before the Lord. Lord, that was wrong of me to think like that or whatever. We should be repentant people. And repentance just doesn't mean speaking to the Lord. It actually means actually going, putting things right, as we've been hearing this morning, even like in our relationships. Look, I've said something to you, or I've said something that's not quite, and I need to put it right. There should be that ongoing repentance in action amongst us. And why is there not? I think this is a key, because there's no right fear of God before us but genuine repentance will always produce a healthy fear of God you know a person may well be sorrow and even uh, sorry and even and even fear the fallout from those people whom they have hurt and offended but too often there is a failure to see primarily that our sin or their sin has offended and grieved the heart of a holy God that's the problem Hence, there is no fear of God. 
The psalmist describes such a one when gripped by his own sinfulness. This is what he says in Psalm 36 and verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And I say, what does that mean? I believe what this means here is transgression has got such a grip on a person that that's all the person's heart hears. In other words, they're being driven by their emotions. They're being, you know, the commons, go with your heart, go with your heart, go with your heart. Well, we know how wicked the heart is, right? So the psalmist says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So while sin grips us and while sin is the dominating aspect of our lives and driving us and directing us, there's no fear of God in their eyes. Saul's sham repentance, we'll go back to Saul for our illustration, Saul's sham repentance before David proved that he had no fear of God. Why? You see, not only did he continue to hunt and hate David, but look at his progress from there on. It wasn't too long before he, he kind of gave up and he tried to call the Lord, but the Lord never answered him. And so he gave him the flick and said, so, okay, um, I, need to, I need to go to the dark side. And so um, he got his men, is, is there any witches, or is there any uh, spiritists or mediums left in the land? Because Saul was a real politician he tried to appease the religious in the land at the time and and he'd given an order that all mediums are to be eradicated but the men kind of say oh, well we do know that there's one lady woman woman who who's there and, and so say, okay show and so he disguised himself and you know the story how he went and pretended to be someone else and so he went to the dark side as we say and as we know and uh, which was a sin against god there was no fear of god before in the eyes of saul not like David, on the other side of the, on the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, David wasn't a perfect man either, even though he was a god after man, a man after God's own heart. Um, you remember David; he was confronted by Nathan the prophet over his sin with Bathsheba, and what was his response? I have sinned against Yahweh. David understood that sin is primarily against God. He feared God. Folks, when you need to discern between true and false repentance, you need to ask this question. Is this person miserable because they have sinned against God or is this all about public shame that their sin has been uncovered? Is their repentance a result of a healthy fear of God, or or is it because they simply want to fix things with others and return their lives back to normal? You need to ask that question. Then we have longing. What longing? This is another clear indication that repentance is is engaged and genuine, is that when you see a, a deep longing for forgiveness and for relationships to be restored. This is what Paul was over the moon about in this Corinthian case. The Corinthians longed for Paul's forgiveness and to be rid of any animosity toward Paul that existed while they were in their sin. These people now long for genuine reconciliation with Paul. This is a hallmark. This is a, this is a mark of, of godly sorrow. 
They understood that they had wronged him deeply, the apostle. And now they longed for his forgiveness so that unity and fellowship would become a hallmark of their in-Christ relationship. That's how it should be, right? That's why we need to be repentant people. And I'm thinking of what Chris said about our relationships with one another this morning. That's how it should be. We need to keep short accounts with one another. Now, folks, you will know that often when a person is confronted about their sin, what often can happen? Even though they may be convincing with a kind of sorry and kiss kind of apology, and to go on better, also to maybe agree to sit under your godly counsel and to have some sessions with you, they may do that. But there is often and can be a noticeable lack of a deep longing for forgiveness and reconciliation with the offended party or parties. That can be often lacking. You often find that their own sinful affections, go back to chapter 6 and verse 11. Um, I think it's verse 6, verse 11. Verse 12, sorry. Paul, verse 11 says, this is where Paul says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. That's just showing, uh, that's just telling the Corinthians how that Paul is just waiting and wanting them to repent. And verse 12 says, You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Restrained in your own affections. You know, sin can be our affections. The sinfulness of the Corinthians restrained them. It wasn't the Apostle Paul's words that restrained it. It was just their sinful ways. They were still dominating. And while they were still dominating, they do restrain us. But praise the Lord in their godly sorrow and their understanding and by the convicting of the Spirit of God, which is the... Uh, initiator in all true repentance. They could see the error of their ways and it brought about a soft heart and a yielding heart. And now they were restrained and moved by a deep longing to please God and to do what was right and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation by Paul. But often... We see, uh, let's bury the past, let's bygone be bygones. We often see that mentality, sad to say. Now that is not a deep longing forgiveness that nurtures reconciliation. No way at all. So a deep longing forgiveness is a hallmark of true repentance. And so number six, what we see here is zeal. Enthusiasm by the penitent to do what is right. You know, the sinning, the difference between true and false repentance can be measured by this, by the zeal, by this enthusiasm to do uh, what is righteous and what is holy and, and according to the word of God, not according to what the pastor says or, or you've got to go through these six steps or whatever. It's according to the word of God. In other words, there is a zeal, and that is, a zeal has kind of two, two sides of the coin. It's a hatred for what you've done wrong and corresponding to that it is a corresponding love and a passion to be holy and righteous that's what zeal is all about 
The truly repentant person will go all out to prove his or her loyalty to those whom they have offended. You got that? They will go all out like never before to prove their trustworthiness. They will be zealous toward that. They will go all out to resolve the damage their sin has done in the lives of others by seeking their forgiveness. They really will. They will not bury their head in the sand or change churches or do something else and duck and dive. No, no, no. There will be a zeal to do what is right. I love Zacchaeus' zealous response. It was a responsive action to God's forgiving grace. Luke 19 tells us about this. You remember Zacchaeus? He was a guy up in the tree and uh, he was a despised one. He was a kind of a ta- he was a tax collector and he was not loved. So he got up in this tree because he was a short man and he wanted to see the Lord Jesus. And uh, as you know the story, uh, the Lord uh, said, come down Zacchaeus, I want to have a meal with you today. And no doubt during that period, the Lord preached faith and repentance, preached to him about the kingdom of God. And... Uh, Zacchaeus got saved. He came to the Lord. And in his repentance, he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, by the way, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. See, it stamped a measure of authenticity upon his repentance. There was a zealousness to do what was right and a hatred towards what was wrong in sin. So a truly repentant person is one who will go all out to be forgiven, reconciled, restored, and to do what is right. And he and she will be zealous in that pursuit. Finally, we see justice. We see that a truly repentant person is one who acknowledges that justice needs to be done. This is the last word in in verse 11, avenging of wrong you may have in your Bibles. You see, when little Tilly that I mentioned at the beginning of of our our little elective here, when she did the sorry and kiss thing, or apology. As I said, her, her mind was elated with the thought that this is all that was needed for amends to be made. All that was needed. I remember years ago when we were raising our children. I would often um, preach at church way back then and my wife would be looking after five little ones, you know, kind of stacked up from the oldest to the youngest. And I wasn't always the youngest one. It was kind of the middle one. I won't mention his name. But he used to play up a bit. He kind of played up a lot, actually. But we kept bringing him to church because that's the greatest place for training children. You need to train your kids at home, of course, to sit quiet when... You have family reading and prayer and and then when they come to church, in most cases, they will follow suit because they know, hey, this is where we come to meet God and so you've got to sit down and shut up and behave yourself. 
But um, one really flexed his um, little depraved nature quite often. And when I was up preaching, that was when he took the opportunity to play up. And on this occasion, he'd been warned that, you know, there will be consequences for your sin here. And um, I've got to be careful not to talk his name. He's not not this one. He's not the guy up the back there either. (laughs) So James is off the hook. Um, And uh, and so this occasion, he really played up. And um, but he knew that there was a way that I could get out of this. So his mother picked him up. His mother picked him up and started carrying him out the church down the aisle. And you know what that little tyke did? Mummy, don't spank me! Mummy, don't spank me! Mummy, don't spank me! All the way. The whole church service stopped. I stopped preaching. Everyone stopped. And the whole thing was hijacked. You know, Mummy, don't spank me! Mummy, don't spank me. Uh, and um, I'll remember that as long as I live. I know my wife's smiling back. She can remember as well. But, but you see, that little fellow already knew that I can escape the consequences of this if I just play with this thing and go through an external worldly sorrow and put on the crocodile tears and even make a noise before everyone and to make my mother feel guilty for carrying out any further discipline. It didn't work, by the way. I believe he got a further discipline for uh, whatever. But I'm just doing that by way of illustration. You see, justice needs to be done. And a repentant person will acknowledge that justice needs to be done. Dear friends, genuine repentance always acknowledges sin for what it is and willingly faces the consequences. There's always consequences for sin, right? And it's only by God's grace that he can kind of smooth out the consequences, but there's always consequences for sin. Just like there's consequences for every choice that we make, whether good or bad, there's consequences also for sin. Like David of old, though truly broken-hearted and repentant, he willingly accepted that his sin with Bathsheba, which included the murder of Uriah, would have lifelong consequences. He accepted that. He did not cry out or, or run from justice or, or, or change anything that God had set down. No. This truly repentant man, though mourning for his dead son, because that was one of the consequences, accepted this purely and straightly and straight up as a consequence for his sin. Folks, worldly sorrow often goes through the motions to escape the consequences. We see that often. A husband might plead with sorrow to his wife for him cheating on her, simply to escape the consequences and to keep it for himself. He can do that. He may do that. An employee might apologize profusely to his boss uh, for constantly being late for work, simply to keep his job and to keep the paycheck coming in, hopefully. Little Tilly, no doubt, shed crocodile tears after sinking her teeth into her brother's arm, simply to avert the consequences of parental discipline. However, however, Godly sorrow, true, genuine repentance, always acknowledges that sin will have its consequences and that, a ju- that justice, or as we have in the American Standard Version, the avenging of wrong is God's good work. Because God's good all the time, right? This is God's good work. It's God's disciplining hand. And that is only ever for our good, just as we've heard for this morning. Paul knew the Corinthians were truly repentant because, first of all, they were in earnest in pursuing righteousness 
They had a huge desire also to clear, to vindicate their name. They were angry over their own sinfulness and the shame and hurt that it had caused. They feared the living God because their sin had primarily offended him. They were longing to restore broken relationships. They were zealous to make things right. They trusted in God's consequential justice that it was for their good. So what do we make of all this? It is true that all these indicators, these seven words that describe what a truly repentant looks like, uh, are not clearly objective and tangible in the initial act of a person's claim to repentance. It is true. But when we stack all these seven indicators up together, we can get a picture. We can begin to biblically engage a pure heart rather than just simply shoot from the hip and be moved by emotive efforts in the heat of the moment. And so as believers, we go back to Galatians 6 and 1. It's our responsibility to discern true repentance from the false so that in love and gentleness we can restore those caught in sin. May God add a blessing to his word, and I hope this has been helpful to you uh, this afternoon. And um, with that, let me close with a word of prayer, and I think we, then we can move on. I think it might be afternoon tea. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, afternoon tea. And before we come back for our Q&A, uh, remember there will be time, still time for you to write questions, maybe something about what we've got here, um, or anything that you have on your mind. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks for your word. We thank you that it is authoritative and we need and must acknowledge it as that. We thank you it is the eternal word. And even when it comes down to so many practical areas of our life, we thank you for how it teaches us and schools us. And Lord, we thank you that we have everything that we need for life and godliness in your word and in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to learn, but not only to learn to be changed, to be transformed, to become more like our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his worthy and precious name. Amen.